Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter 4. We are departing from our series in Genesis to preach something that would be more fitting for a preface to our Lord's Supper celebration this afternoon. And we're going to be returning to our intermittent series on what we've called the Heart of Jesus. And in preparation for what we're going to study, we're going to read verses 14 to 16, Hebrews 4, beginning with verse 14. Our text is actually going to be verse 15, but backing up to verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray once again. Most gracious and blessed God, we do thank you that you are the God that provided such a high priest for us. You've sent your son into the world that he might be not only the sacrifice for our sins, but also the priest to offer that sacrifice before you. And we pray that as we gather around your table this afternoon to meditate upon what he has done for our souls, we pray that you would grant us grace that we might have a sight to see those things that you would set before us in your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher. We would not be dull learners, we do pray. We would not be those that only can drink milk and not have solid meat, but we pray, Lord, that you'd be pleased to give us that hunger and that appetite for spiritual truth that would feed our souls and strengthen us as we walk before you. Help us in our weakness, we do pray. We pray it all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In the four Gospels, there is only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. In Matthew 11 and verse 28, he tells us, I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's only in this one place that the Son of God pulls the veil back, as it were, and lets us peer into the very core of who he is. And when he tells us about his inner being, he doesn't say, I'm austere and demanding in heart. He doesn't say any such thing. The one time he speaks to us about his heart, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And this text is something of a springboard for our intermittent series of Lord's Supper sermons on the heart of Jesus. In our previous sermons on this theme, we looked at what it is for Jesus to be gentle and lowly in heart. And then we looked at how this gentleness and this lowliness of heart was on display throughout his ministry, throughout his life. And in our last sermon, we looked at the joy of Jesus. And we saw that manifesting this gentle and lowly heart to people, this gave him great happiness and joy. It wasn't that he was, well, if I have to, that wasn't his attitude about how he would minister to people. He loved to do it because he was a savior who was gentle and lowly in heart. 
And prompted by Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, this afternoon, we're going to see how this gentleness and lowliness was manifested in Christ's sympathy as our great high priest. And this book by Ortland, it was prompted by a treatise that was published in 1651 by Thomas Goodwin. And Thomas Goodwin, he was in the era of the Puritans in the 1600s. He was together with John Owen, one of the great leaders of the independent movement in England. And as Ortland puts it, referring to the way the Puritans wrote and the way that Goodwin presents this treatise, he points out that the way they often would write is to take just one Bible verse and then wring it dry for all of its heart-affecting theology. And then two or three hundred pages later, send it to the publisher to be published. Well, Goodwin's Heart of Christ, which is, by the way, his most popular book, it was written in this style. And the verse that's being wrung dry is Hebrews 4 and verse 15. And it's the verse we're going to look at this afternoon, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Goodwin's great burden is to convince disheartened believers that even though Christ is now in heaven, he is just as open and tender of heart now in heaven as he was while he was here upon earth. And the original title page of the first edition of this book, it reads this way. You remember it almost took up a whole page when they would make a title page to give the title. And this is the way it reads, the heart of Christ in heaven towards sinners on earth, or a treatise demonstrating the gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in his human nature, now in glory unto his members under all sorts of infirmities, either of sin or of misery. And the closing lines of this title they clarify what, that by Christ's heart, as he's writing his treatise on the heart of Jesus, by his heart, Goodwin means Christ's gracious disposition and tender affection. And he wants to show his readers the biblical evidence that Christ in glory today is just as approachable, and he is no less approachable, he is no less compassionate than he was when he was here upon earth. And after an introductory section, Goodwin explains why he has chosen this verse with a view to demonstrating this point. And I want to just quote a couple sentences here. I have chosen this text, he writes, as that which above any other speaks his heart most and sets out the frame and workings of it towards sinners. And that so sensibly that it does, as it were, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast and lets us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn toward us. Even now he is in glory. The very scope of these words being manifestly to encourage believers against all that may discourage them from the consideration of Christ's heart toward them now in heaven. Now just imagine with me for a moment what it would be like to ascend into heaven and to place both of your hands 
on the chest of the Lord Jesus. And as it were, pretend that your hands are like a stethoscope and you're able to feel the beating heart of Jesus, the vigorous heartbeat, not just of his physical body, but in this instance, a spiritual stethoscope discovering his deepest affections and longings of his heart. And Goodwin is saying that we don't have to wonder what it would be. Hebrews 4.15 enables us to do just that. Now, before we look at what verse 15 tells us about this heart, it's helpful for us to step back slightly and look at what we read in verse 14. Let's notice again that verse. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In the book of Hebrews, it's an extended exhortation to persevere in faith. That's what the whole book is about. He doesn't want people to give up. He says, run the race, for instance. He gives those kinds of exhortations throughout the book. And this theme is reiterated in the words at the end of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. He's urging the readers not to abandon their confession of faith in Christ. He is urging them not to embrace false doctrines contrary to the gospel. He's calling them not to allow sacrifices involved in following Christ. The self-denial that's involved to discourage them in their struggles against sin. And to lead them just to give up and say, it's just too hard, I can't do this anymore. Holding fast our confession, dear people, is not easy. Richard Phillips, he relates how one young Christian described the manner in which a colleague at work belittled Christianity. And he belittled it, this colleague, as an escape from the difficulties of real life. And he pictured it as the easy route, you see, for the weak people. You ever hear that description of Christianity? Well, it's just a crutch for people. It's just for those, this accusation was right back in the early church. Uh, you know, there was screeds that were written, this is just for the poor, ignorant, weak people, that's what it's for. People that need, need this kind of religion, but we don't need it, we're better than that. We're not so stupid and ignorant as these Christians. And so that's what this, this objector was saying. It's just an escape for you. Escape, she replied. An escape? You try to live as a Christian. You try to wage war against the desires of the flesh. You try to live as an alien in a strange land. And you come and tell me that Christianity is the easy way? Well, she was right. God gave her real boldness and wisdom on the spot to, to say what she said. Jesus said in contrast to the broad gate, or the, the broad way that leads to destruction and the wide gate that... Uh, opens up to that way. He said this in contrast to that, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Well, to encourage discouraged saints that want to be tempted to give up is just too hard. The writer to the Hebrews, he says, we have a high priest. That's what he says here in verse 14. That's the way it begins. We have a high priest. Now, there's no spiritual privilege enjoyed by the saints of the Old Testament who had a high priest that we don't have as well. 
And we have it in a better way than they did. We have a sacrifice which, having been offered, avails forever. Our sacrifice doesn't need to be repeated. And we have a high priest that is greater than the high priest in the temple of old, who presents, our high priest presents a finished work that never needs to be repeated in the heavenly tabernacle. And the sacrifice that he presents is efficacious. It delivers us from all sin. We have a high priest, far better than any that was ever in the old covenant. And notice in this verse 2 that we are told that this high priest has, and here I quote again, has passed through the heavens. In contrast to the high priest of the Levitical order, what did he do? He passed from the sight of the people once a year into the Holy of Holies, taking the sacrifice to sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, upon the, on the covering seat that would present blood being covering sins as, by way of illustration. He passed out of the view, you see, to do this, and he could only do it one time a year. But in contrast with this, our high priest at his ascension, he passed not just into a room for a little while, but he passed from the sight of the gazing apostles on the hill right through the heavens into heaven itself and into the very presence of God to appear in our behalf. And we mustn't think, though, that our author is just speaking of a spatial journey that he's going to see like, like some kind of a superman that flies higher than anybody. This is not just a cosmonaut that he's speaking about. His language is the language of transcendence. Not only did Jesus ascend, but in doing this, he completely transcended all the limits of time and space. He passed through heavens, you see. That's the way he describes it. It's a transcendence that speaks of uniqueness and greatness. And then he goes on to say, he is therefore a great high priest. He's no ordinary high priest, but rather he is the high priest par excellence. He's utterly unique in his power and glory. Aaron and all his sons and all his descendants are little ones compared to this one. The long line of priests that were called by God to stand before God on earth, they were all passed away. But we have a transcendently great high priest who never dies, who has an unchangeable priesthood, and who is able to save unto the uttermost those who come to God through him, seeing he always lives to make intercession for them. This writer goes on to say, he is the great high priest because his sacrifice, it achieved a finished atonement. It never needs to be repeated, never needs to be supplemented. He is the great high priest because he will never pass away and because he will never need to be replaced. He is the great high priest because he ever lives to make intercession for us. And because his intercessions, his prayers in other words, they prevail in the immediate presence of our thrice holy God. And notice how in verse 14 again, we're told something else about this one. His name is Jesus, which means savior. He's truly man. And this is his human name. He's able to represent us, therefore, before God. He was born of a woman to save his people from their sins. And therefore, his name is Jesus. 
Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It was said to the first pair, to, our, to his parents. He is Jesus. And furthermore, he is Jesus, the Son of God. For he's not only man, but he is fullness of deity, this high priest. Gracious in his manhood. He's glorious in his deity. He is the fullness of deity. And to the Son, the Father therefore can say, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. He is Jesus, the Son of God, both man and God, and therefore able to bridge the gap between man and God. This is the one of whom the author of this book goes on to tell us about in verse 15, which is our text tonight. And aware that some trembling souls might hear these words about the divine greatness of our Savior, and aware that hearing of how great he is, there might be trembling, there might be, you see, a reluctance to draw near to this great one. Our author, he hastens quickly in this text to tell them of his sympathetic tenderness. And in all of his divine majesty and splendor, he is, he tells us, a sympathetic high priest. Great as he is, our high priest is not one who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, we are told. And so even this afternoon, I would speak to a poor, work, weak believer here, maybe, still struggling with sin. You're still weighed down with your infirmities and your sins and your temptations, and you never seem to get the better of them. And you easily get despondent. You easily get discouraged along the way. And you don't need to be afraid of this great high priest. He's the very embodiment of gentleness and sympathy and compassion. That's what the author is telling us. And so as we approach the table of remembrance this afternoon, you can come to him. You can bring your tale of woe. You can confess your sins. You can, you can tell him of your struggles and how it didn't go any better this past week than the week before. And he is not one that will break the, 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 the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. And so for your encouragement, I want to speak of our Savior's sympathetic office. That's the first point. And secondly, of his sympathetic feeling. And then if we get to it, his sympathetic experience and his sympathetic sinlessness. Under our first heading, I want to speak, first of all, about our Savior's sympathetic office. This very office of being our great high priest is a sympathetic office. Now, if the office of high priest was carried out as it was intended, it was one of the most tender offices ever devised. A king is a terror to evil people. But a high priest, in the highest sense possible, is appointed for men. We read in chapter 5 and verse 2. It's, he's appointed for ordinary people. Ordinary men. Not for the great ones of the earth. It's the needy ones. He's appointed for them. He's given by God for the comfort and for the aid of wretched, conscience-stricken sinners. The apostle has just written of the piercing, searching power of the word of God. The end of chapter 4, he speaks about that word being a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. 
And he's added that there's no creature that is hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open before the eyes of him before whom we must give an account. Chapter 4 and verse 12 and verse 13. It's terrifying language. He sees it all. He divides our thoughts. It's all exposed. It's all naked and open before him. Everything you do and everything you say, all the sin. But as Luther comments, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. And after pouring wine into our wound, he now pours in oil. So here I want to point out that the bare mention of Christ as a priest, it comforts our souls. It pours oil into our wounds, as Luther puts it. So I want you to think with me briefly about the basic functions of a priest. What a priest was upon earth and what our priest now in heaven still is. And for some of the observations that I'm about to make, I'm indebted to C.H. Spurgeon. I just want to say that. First of all, and these things are listed there in your outlines, his duties include communing with men. The priest was appointed by God to be a go-between, between God and man. As the priest went into the presence of God, he was, and here I quote, to bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate over his heart. Their names were to be on his heart. He was to carry those names into the presence of God. And therein, in that breastplate, was also placed the Urim and the Thummim. He bore the names of God's people on his heart as he went in there. And he also wore in his, wore therein, his Urim and Thummim, the, the, the instrument that was used, or one of the instruments used of revealing God's will to men, the Urim and the Thummim. And that's the way it's described in Exodus chapter 28. And God didn't continue to speak to Israel from the mountain that burned with fire, with thunder and lightning and terror. He didn't continue to speak to them in that way. Instead, what did he do when he chose prophets to denounce sin and the like. But he also chose some others to communicate truth to his people. He chose Aaron, and he commissioned him, and here I quote, to teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken, Leviticus 10:11. And it's true that the prophets were the primary mouthpieces of God to the people, but the priests were also called to teach God's people. And while the prophets were often called by God to speak in thunderous tones to the wickedness of a whole nation, the priest's job was very different, you see. He would speak to people one-on-one -on -one as they would come and confess their sins and bring their sacrifices. And he would be the very one that would, with that sacrifice, explain the meaning of it and tell them the scriptures. He was an instrument to communicate Biblical truth. You see, they didn't all have enough money, each one to have parchments with the law and the like. So he needs to tell them what God has said. He was a teacher among God's people. Broken over his sin, you see, a sacrificer would come to the priest with his sacrifice in arms. And the priest would not only offer that sacrifice to the Lord, but he would show that penitent Israelite the way in which he should go. You confess your sins. This is the way God wants of you. And then also he would re remind this person of, 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 of God's promises. 
And so intermingled in his instructions would be instructions about what God wants it to do, but also he would communicate, you see, promises of the word of God to those that are grief-stricken over their sin. And he would speak, you see, in a very one-on-one way. He would give give his language, you see, in the language of the common man. So if a man is to come, you see, from the reading of God's law, I'm talking here now about the priest, he's read the word of God, he's studied it perhaps in his devotions that morning, he's preparing his heart, you see, as the priest, for people that would come in, and he's to come from that time that he spent with the Lord, and he is to come now from the infinite place, as it were, to speak of the ignorant, to speak of the infinite things and the great things of God, and now to bring it down to the level of the ignorant and the narrow capacities of the people that came to him. He needs to be tender. He needs to be, you see, like a nurse with her children. Great philosophers, you see, they don't always, they're not always great teachers. Their profundity, they have a difficult time translating their great thoughts to the capacities of common people. But the priests were especially, con- they, they weren't just the philosophers in some kind of school in Athens. They were dealing with the common people, everyday people coming with their sins and their needs. And they were therefore to, to teach them in this setting. And so Malachi 2 and verse 7 says, the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. And this is what the Lord Jesus is to us, dear people. In the most tender manner, he reveals the Father. And in the most gracious way, he, yes, reproves us of our sin, but he also shows us the way of forgiveness and mercy and grace. This is what he is to us. And like the, the priests of old, His reproofs are delivered in the most tender way. He tells us of our faults, just like he did with the disciples, in such tender ways. Now, so often the reproofs of other people, they're delivered in a cutting, sharp way. And we tend to bristle. We tend to just kind of react and put up the guard against them. But we know that even when our high priest needs to rebuke us, he does it in the way he did it with his disciples, in a way that demonstrates that everything he has to say is delivered to them in tenderness and in love. So this is the first thing that we see by way of understanding what the priest did. His duties included communing with men. And then secondly, the office of priest had also included interceding with God. Now the two main functions of the priest were sacrifice and intercession. Intercession is prayer, in word for it. And before interceding with God, he sits down and he hears the trembling petitions of the troubled mother. She's weighed down with her difficult children, and she says, so I, 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 just, I just get so angry sometimes, and I, I, I sit against God, and it's so hard to deal with, with, with Aaron, you see, the way he is. He hears the complaints, you see, of an oppressed person that's a widow that is distressed by her poverty and the ones that take advantage of her. He hears the trials of the poor. He hears the brokenhearted confession of sinners. And then as a man of God, he's ordained to take these burdens in prayer to God. At least a priest that understood what he was supposed to be doing, this is what he would do. 
You remember how Eli failed at this. Hannah comes in with her deep distress over her childlessness. And he sees her weeping. He sees her lips moving in silent prayer. And instead of entering into her burden and saying, well, she must really be distressed over something, he accuses her of being drunk. He just misses, he doesn't understand what she's doing. He assumes the worst. And in a similar way, well-meaning pastors, they sometimes get, don't enter into the meaning and the struggles, you see, of the people that come to them with their, their struggles, and their temptations, and their sins. We fail people as pastors. But we could tell our great high priest our deepest woes. He, we confess our worst sins. And we can be sure that he enters into our case better than even the best physician does with the ailments of any, any patient that he comes to care, for his care. Jesus rightly reads our case. He's not like Eli that misses the boat. And then with a heart filled with compassion, he presents our case before God. And when we tell him our inward grief, he understands our case better than we do. He's the interpreter, one of a thousand, who reports our sighs to heaven. And then there was a third thing that the priest was tasked with. And it was that of bearing sin before God. We read in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 29. Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord. You see, he couldn't be the sin bearer, obviously, in the way Christ was in terms of being the sacrifice itself and himself being the punishment, taking to himself the punishment, suffering as a vicarious suffering in behalf of sinners. He couldn't do that. But he was called upon to bear the judgment in, in another sense. He hears the confession of sin that, of the person that comes and, and brings his sacrifice. And people would come and they would acknowledge, you see, their known transgressions. And they would ask for help in discerning their unknown faults, their sins of ignorance. And as God's representative, he was called upon to deal with the sins of the people of God. This, this was a burden, you see. It, 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 it's, it's not something you and I would like to do, just hearing all this stuff. We'd just rather be ignorant, just have all the nice things about people that come to our attention. This was a tender post to occupy. What well, one of us wants to ever do that? Which one of us would feel fit for that kind of a task? To hear these things and then say the right thing in response. And when the priest, he hears the struggles of those that come to him, he listens to the mournful story of their wandering. This required tenderness. And surely there was never a priest that completely fulfilled the demands of this kind of a position. But you and I never need to fear, you see, pouring our heart into the ear of our, our great high priest. We can pour into his ear the worst of our sins, the most shameful of our struggles, things we would be embarrassed for any other person to ever know about. Even as we come to the table this afternoon, you can freely show him all the filthiness. You can be honest with him. And you can have, by confession, those sins washed away by his blood. And you'd be terrified to know that other people knew all those things. 
but he knows them and he doesn't cast you out. Your high priest, he, he, he will never turn you away with harsh words or cut you down with withering denunciations. He won't issue crushing sentence upon you. You can come freely and you can unburden your soul and your sins at his feet. But then, also included among the priest's responsibilities was that of comforting mourners. Now, it must have been a great relief for the sorrowing Israelite to go to the sanctuary and to unburden his or her heart to the Lord of troubles and anxieties and to tell the man of God that was there who would then remind that soul, that distressed soul, of the promises of God and even the act of telling the story sometimes, just getting it off your chest, you see. This is a help, especially when the distressed is confident that the priest is going to hear it in the right way and hear it with a sympathetic ear. And so I would urge you to go to Jesus. Just tell him everything that gnaws away at your heart. Don't hide anything. Just tell him the whole story. Even Eli, once he figures it out that he, he misread Hannah, even Eli, he, he corrected himself, you see. And when he hears what it's all about, why she was weeping and, and so on, he bade her go in peace. He says, the Lord's heard your prayer. He's going to answer your prayer. And you can be assured that he's, Jesus is never going to misunderstand you the way Eli did with Hannah. You could tell him your trouble. And like Hannah, you could depart in peace. And your face will no longer be sad, just like hers was no longer sad. He knows your bitterness even better than you do. So go ahead, pour out the wormwood and the gall. As expressed in the wonderful hymn attributed to John Calvin that we sang a moment ago, Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness. No harshness hast thou and no bitterness. Make us to taste the sweet grace found in thee. And so when we consider our Savior's sympathetic office as our great high priest, his communing with men, his interceding with God, his bearing sin, his comforting mourners. We just went through those four things. We discover in these ways the sweet grace that is to be found only in him. And now, having looked at our Savior's sympathetic office, we want to turn our gaze in the second place to look at our Savior's sympathetic feeling. I can see we're not going to get through this whole sermon, by the way, so don't worry about how far we're going to get in the outline. But I want to at least begin on the second point, to look at his sympathetic feeling. Even though our Savior has passed through the heavens, a picture of transcendence, of majesty, he's touched still with a feeling of our weaknesses. And even though he's left behind all the pain, all the suffering, all the weakness, all the sorrow, he's no longer afflicted like he once was, he still carries in his heart the fellow feeling of humanity, our humanity. Even in heaven, he is man as well as God. You remember Joseph. Joseph was Lord of Egypt. He was the great and second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And yet you remember how even Joseph, in that high position, carried in his heart 
sympathy and love for his distressed brothers. He finally sees after he's put to the test that they're broken over their sin. And he's so much touched by it, he has to go on to another room and he has to weep. He's touched with their humanity and with their, their, their confession. And our heavenly Joseph, dear people, even though he's Lord of all, even though he's passed through the heavens, even though now he is the great mighty king, this same Lord Jesus, he hasn't forgotten his brethren. And his heart is still moved with compassion at the sight of their distress. And just like the high priest of old wore the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on his breastplate when he went into the presence of the Lord, our high priest, he still bears our names upon his heart. He bears them in the presence of the Father. And he still carries our sins and the symbol of what he did to put them away. He carries those symbols in his pierced hands, his pierced feet, his pierced side, memorials of his sufferings in our behalf. Now the burden of Hebrews 4 and verse 15 is what Ortland calls Jesus Christ's sheer solidarity with his people. Now it's natural for us to think of Jesus being with us and helping us when life is going well. It's interesting how we say, well, that was a providential circumstance. When do we usually say that? Do we just say, well, that was a providential circumstance when I got that job. That was wonderful how I met the right person, interviewed the right person, and got the job. That was very providential. Um, do we say, well, that was a providential circumstance that when I went for that interview, the guy was just really nasty with me. We don't usually say it then, do we? We, we say it, you see, when things have gone well with us. But our text is telling us, and stressing the opposite. His sympathy is especially extended in connection with our weaknesses. And here I want to stress that part of verse 15 that, in which we read that he is not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And this phrase, sympathize with our weaknesses, it is so sweet. Every word deserves attention. First of all, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Think about that little word, with. And here the writer to the Hebrews, he takes us by the hand. He leads us deeply into the heart of Christ. He shows us what Ortland calls the unrestrained withness. I think he must have just made that word up. The unrestrained withness of Jesus regarding his people. Now back in chapter 2, the writer to the Hebrews, he has said that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect and that he himself suffered when he was tempted. His temptations, they came with sufferings. And because he was made like his brethren, like us, except for our sins, he identifies with us in our weaknesses. Some of our weaknesses are not sinful. They're just part of our humanity. In him was the perfect fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He himself took our infirmities. He took our weaknesses and bore our sicknesses. Isaiah 53, 4, and it's quoted again in Matthew 8, verse 17. And having taken our nature, he takes our weaknesses, he takes our infirmities, he takes our sufferings right down into his heart. 
Now, there are, there are people that they tend to pity the sorrowing, but they're not as if with them in their sorrow, in that sense. It's pity that's at a distance. You know you feel sorry for people, so you're going to send the mission $15 to help give them a Christmas meal. It's kind of at a distance, you see. That's their, the level of their pity. And there are people that are sorry for the poor, but they're never poor themselves. They've never felt that poverty. They can't really be with that person in that poverty in the same way. And therefore, though they might be touched by the, by the sight of the poverty, they're not touched with a fellow feeling of being with, as it were, in the same boat with that fellow feeling for that person going through the poverty. But our Savior, he's felt, he's experienced what you and I, we've ex we felt and experienced. And the intense pain that just shot down your, your leg this past week and just made you almost scream. He's felt that kind of pain before. That grief that you've experienced by the loss of a loved one, he's experienced. They say that the strings of a harp, even when there's nobody playing the harp, plucking the strings, those strings vibrate in sympathy when another harp in the same room is being played. And so it is with the heart of the Lord Jesus. And this is why it is written in all their affliction. He was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old, Isaiah 63, 9. In their afflictions, he was afflicted. He was with them in their afflictions. He can say, I know their sorrows because he's experienced those sorrows. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And then also, and here, I don't think we'll get beyond this, but I want to say something by way of introduction at least. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now, if our author had said that he sympathizes with our sorrows, this would have been sublime. But he describes Christ's sympathy as extending lower than that to our weaknesses. He sympathizes not with just the heroic endurance of the martyr, but those, but those that are not the heroes. He sympathizes with those of you that can only plead, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now there, there are, I, I struggle with how to interpret this word here. I have to just confess, and I'm still a little bit uncertain here. just want to be honest with you here. There are some interpreters that they suppose that our author, he's thinking not just of physical weakness, but he's speaking of intellectual and moral weakness, that he sympathizes with that, you know, moral failures. Because we go on and read in just three verses later in chapter 5 and verse 2 of the ordinary priest that he can, quote, have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to to weakness. And of course these interpreters, they're not saying that Christ experienced weakness in the way that he gave in to temptation. He was weak and so he fell. And therefore he can understand how you fall. That's not what they're saying. They're saying rather that having experienced the full onslaught of the temptation and having the strength to resist that temptation, he still can feel for people that in their weakness succumb to that temptation. But I'm more comfortable and here again, I want to be very tentative here with saying that the reference here is to the weakness of the human nature that he took to himself. 
I think that Gerhardus Voss is probably correct when he says that the weakness is that which with, is the weakness with which sin is not necessarily connected, even though it may render human nature susceptible to temptation and sin. You see, crankiness and irritability, that's the sin. But the weakness is being tired. The weakness, you see, is, is make, makes it possible, you see, or as it were, opens your heart up to being tempted. You're susceptible because you're tired. And this can be illustrated by Christ's temptation in the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says, after it he hungered. And Satan preyed upon that intense hunger in his emaciated, starved state when he was just dying with hunger. He, he afterwards hungered. Intensive, it's, it's an intensified description. He's subject to physical weakness. And in this state of physical weakness, almost all of us would have given in to Satan's temptation. Of course, we couldn't have made stones into bread, but we would have done what we can. He was supposed to trust God, but that Satan's tempting him not to do that. He's able, therefore, to sympathize with the pressures that come upon us, such as Paul's thorn in the flesh and the pressures that came upon him. And he's able, therefore, to enter into the struggles that such a one has in that he, as this passage tells us, sympathizes with our weaknesses. Well, I, I think that probably this is a good place for us to break off. There's no real convenient place for me to break off what we're studying, and I think we're going to have to take this up another time. But I want to say that by way of application, not only, and I trust you can see the point all along is this, you're going to come to this high priest this, as we celebrate the Lord's table and confess your sin and know that he, he receives you. He's not going to put you down. He's not going to just stomp on you and make you discourage the rest of the week and, and make you wish that you hadn't even opened up your mouth. That's not the way he's going to respond to you. And so this is the obvious application of what we've been studying. But another application I just want to mention before we go is that this should make us like Jesus, shouldn't it? It should make us to be gentle and gracious with people when we have dealings with them. Now there's some times where, where there needs to be calling out the vipers as Jesus did those cases are, are not what we're talking about here. But we need to see people in their desperate situations and their neediness and seek to enter into their struggles. And just by way of trying to put a little burr in your mind, I want to just tell you about an incident that took place some time ago. The phone rang at a high society Boston home. And one on the other end of the line was a son that had just returned from Vietnam. And he was calling from California. His folks were in the cocktail circuit, the party kind, the drinking, wife-swapping, gambling, all the other things that go with it. The high society, free-living types. The boy said to his mother, I just called to tell you I wanted to bring a buddy home with me. And his mother said, sure, bring him along for a few days. But mother, there's something you need to know about this boy. One leg is gone, one arm's gone, one eye's gone, and his face is quite disfigured. Is it all right if I bring him home? And his mother said, bring him home for a few days. And the son said, you didn't understand me, mother. I want to bring him home to live with us. And the mother began to make all kinds of excuses about being embarrassed and what people would think, and the phone clicked. 
few hours later, the police called from California to Boston. The mother picked up the phone again. And the sergeant said at the other end, we just found a boy with one arm, one leg, one eye, and a mangled face who has just killed himself with a shot in the head. The identification papers on the body, they say, he's your son. There are people out there that are like that. Spiritually speaking, they've got a mangled face, they've got a broken arm, they've lost an arm. They've got all kinds of hurts that have happened to them as a result of being in this life and being in the war, just even as sinners go through wars and struggles. And it's so easy for us to want our kind, as we put it, and to be off-putting with people that are like that. And we need to realize that Jesus reaches out to the likes of us. And what were we when we came into his presence? Were we all put together? Were we all the ones that, that uh, were just had everything was clean and nice, nice and wonderful? I think most of us would say no. This should teach us this instance and by way of contrast the way the high priest was to receive people in the old covenant and especially Jesus receives us. It should teach us to receive people or to receive sinners to be like Jesus of whom he was accused. This man eats with sinners and receives sinners. May the Lord help us to be just that way. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you, we bless you that you've given to us the privilege, the high privilege of imitating our master. And we pray that you would give us grace to do just that. We pray that we would not be some kind of a, an elite club that wants all the people that are the spiritual Navy SEALs and we're going to be the elite ones. Help us, Lord, to be like the priests that would deal with common sinners that would come with sacrifices and needs day by day. And above all, to be like our Savior. And we pray that as we still come, like those grieved mothers and grieved fathers and brothers and sisters of old, coming bringing a lamb to the priest, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know that we are received by you. Help us not to shy away. Help us not to become discouraged with our battle against sin. Help us to persevere, fighting day after day until that day is over when we're called together to glory to be with you. And now as we gather around the table, we pray that you would use the meditation of what Jesus went through on our behalf to be a means of strengthening us to persevere even to the end. We pray in Christ's name.